Hello and welcome to the Burning Bridges Podcast. This is episode 7. I'm your host, Mike Spriegel. Thank you for once again for everybody who has been listening. I've been getting an amazing amount of increase in listenership from various places. Like right now, Japan. A lot of people downloading in Japan. And I'm starting to actually get some people downloading in Germany. So thank you for everybody who's taking the time. As I always say, time is always one of the biggest commodities that everybody has. So for you to spend your time to listen to this podcast, I am greatly appreciative. Uh, a few things here. Our episode today, the focus of the episode is going to be professional wrestling. What professional wrestling was like back in the 80s as well as the 90s. And I am not alone right now. Joining me for this podcast, I have with me Kevin Hansen. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how's it going? It is going amazingly well. Kind of the reason why I asked uh, Kevin to be on the podcast is I know that he had a love of wrestling just like me. One of the first jobs I had, I actually worked with Kevin, and they had an Employee of the Month, of course, championship belt that they made that if you got the Employee of the Month, guess what? You got to have that belt for the month and wear it around. And that's what you do when you're young is you just enjoy and embrace all your dreams. So. I forgot all about that belt. That was pretty awesome. I did not forget about it at all, but because I, I was sitting there thinking about, it, I was like, "Yeah, I remember that." Because I had it once. Maybe I never had it. No, you had it. <laughs> well, I remember you had it, and Don had it at one point. It, but that's just the thing. Only certain people had it because when you work in a fast food restaurant, it's not like there's longevity out of your employees. Like, yeah, you know, I started when I was seventeen, and I'm uh, now. Well, actually, the place we worked at, yeah, there was that kind of longevity. <laughs> Anyhow, a few things, just getting housekeeping out of the way. First, uh, call out some social media here. If you have any comments about our podcast, as well as any suggestions for future ones, we're on Twitter at bbridgespod, uh, or you can follow us on Facebook at Burning Bridges Podcast. Um, right now, plugging what we love. Right now at this time, things I'm right now looking forward to. Tomorrow, Season 3 of Rick and Morty comes back on the air. Big fan of that, if anybody's followed that. The beer I'm drinking right now is Stone's Annual Ruin 10 Triple IPA. This year with orange peel and vanilla bean. Now I do say you can definitely taste that vanilla in there. So, interesting enough. And I'm also enjoying right now the new Nine Inch Nails record, Ad Violence, that came out about a week, week and a half ago or so. It's kind of interesting seeing Trent Reznor put out a lot more EPs, but then again, it lets him do a lot more tighter focused vision versus trying to put together an album. And there's a lot of interviews he's done out there too about music and how things have changed as he's gotten older. Look him up. They're good to read. What about you, Kevin? What are the things that you're uh, watching, reading, drinking? Um, I'm also enjoying one of the Ruin 10 beers, and I have to say it's very good. This is the first time having it, 10.8%. Um, so the show could get more interesting as we go here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, as far as listening, I've got Guns N' Roses coming to town tomorrow night. So just kind of taking a step back in, t- in time, listening to all of their old classic albums. Um, and not really watching too much other than baseball right now. Now here's a quick sidetrack of, uh, of our wrestling topic. Use Your Illusion albums, one and two. Would it be better as just one single album? And you took the, let's say, about six songs off each album. Yeah, I could see a case for that, but I don't know. I'm, I'm an old CD listener, so I enjoy albums in their entirety versus today's youth that likes to download one track from somebody and move on with their life. So I'll take the good with the bad. I think it's a good balance. 
Yeah, it's a weird like thing I've had going through my head because there's been a lot more Guns N' Roses played on the radio lately, and I started re-listing a few of Guns N' Roses songs, and it's weird because with the Use Your Illusion albums, there's things that Axel does in those albums, and I sit there and like, why? Like, I listen to Knocking on Heaven's Door, and there's that weird answering machine part that's in the song that disrupts it. Or you listen to Civil War, and he has this part where he speed talks over it. Or even on the song Pretty Tied Up, at one point he says, Cool Ranch Dressing, for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) So it's a weird phase in Axel's career, but this isn't the Axel Rose podcast. This is, uh, right now, focusing on wrestling. So, segueing over into that. So, it all starts, I guess, on where it began. I mean... For you, what was your earliest memories of wrestling? What was it that you recall as a kid that kind of drew you in? Well, I think I have to to go first to Rocky III with Thunderlips, right? I mean, huge Rocky fan. Seeing Thunderlips, Hulk Hogan, it just was like, oh, that could be interesting. But honestly, initially I thought they were probably all just overweight rednecks and didn't think much of it until I saw Jimmy Superfly Snuka fly off the top rope. Then I was like, wow, there's some actual athleticism with some of these guys, and maybe it it's worth taking a look at. Well, it's also interesting about what you mentioned about Rocky Three is that with Rocky Three that came out in nineteen, I think, eighty three, if I'm correct. So that's before he even became uh, Hulk Hogan became as popular as he was. He was actually still a heel, I think, in the AWA or just came over to the WWF at the time. Correct. Too. So it wasn't like he was even the height of his popularity. So that's kind of an interesting turnaround right there how he's kind of the bad guy at that point and he would go on to be one of the most popular guys in the 80s so for sure uh for me i i think my oh what's that computer the computer is wanting to tell me right now the sd card right now has an issue <laughs> professionalism folks that's what you get out of this podcast <laughs> nice uh, my earliest memories of wrestling was actually WrestleMania too. Um, my uh, uncles loved wrestling, and they would always get the pay-per-views whenever they could or you know, try to get cassettes of them or just whatever they could. And I remember watching that pay-per-view uh, so many different times. They bought, like uh, I think, the cassettes. And I'm, I don't think the young me had the words to put it into perspective, but I think the better way of putting it is that I, I think in sort of segueing what drew us into the, the sport of giants is that for me, it was like a live action cartoon. You're watching all these people do these things that in real life never really are things that would ever probably be normal or acceptable, but it was entertaining. And there was the soap opera aspect to it. But for me, I think that was it is that you're watching these guys. It's a good guy versus a bad guy and they're fighting each other. I mean, it's no different than watching probably Transformers or G.I. Joe, except here's real life people. I mean, what was uh, what was it that I think drew you in or? Yeah, I think once I started watching, um, I was living in Georgia at the time, and NWA was huge down there. They recorded it, you know, in Atlanta for that show that was on every week at 6 o'clock p.m. And once I started watching that, it's same things you were mentioning, just the, the fact that it was really good storylines of good guy versus bad guy. I think for me, initially watching the Four Horsemen, you know, Tully, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, Ric Flair at the time, they, I just hated them. You know what I mean? And that's how good they were. I think that was the thing that just drew me in was how much I hated these guys. And, you know, later on realizing that, you know, that's just the role they're playing, but they were really good at it. Well, that was part of the reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast as well, because I knowing that you grew up in the South, you had a lot more exposure to uh, the NWA, which 
I more retroactively started getting into the NWA. Like, and going back and watching now because of the internet, and you see what they were doing in the NWA back then versus what the WWF is doing. Two completely different products and so many different levels. And I didn't get an introduction to, I think, the NWA until it was just becoming WCW in the late 80s. That's when on uh, Channel 23, they used to have Saturday Night at Ringside with Mick Carnes, and they'd have WCW Wrestling, the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, and then USWA Wrestling on there and that's when i got exposed to a lot of guys that i never knew about before and yeah it's it was definitely one of those things that and that it's a point i'll bring up later and as i said there's a contrast in the product between the nwa and the wwf and eventually what became wcw but you know it's it's definitely very interesting when you now look back and see what each of those companies are doing and then looking where those companies are now and just seeing what went right from and what went wrong now be honest did you think it was real? Oh, for sure I did. For sure I did. I remember one of my one of the earlier matches or feuds that I saw was uh, my favorite tag team was the Rock and Roll Express in the NWA. <laughs> Just because to me they were very relatable. They were into rock music, or you know that was their look anyway. Um, you know Ric Flair being the flamboyant, you know rich guy. So to me that feud was just fun to watch. And there was one point where they had backstage backstage footage of. Ric Flair rubbing Ricky Morton's face into the concrete and there's blood everywhere. And I was truly legitimately scared for him. I'm like, he's getting jumped backstage. Somebody help this guy out. Yeah. I I remember matches where uh, Hogan was being attacked by King Kong Bundy and Bundy kept doing like these giant splashes on Hogan in the corner of the ring and then Hogan was spitting up blood and they're like oh he's hurt internally and yeah when you're young you see something like that you don't know any better it's like holy Hogan's hurt oh no and but then you like start watching and like and you right you invest into it you see these physical things and when you're young you don't have a reason to believe otherwise that it's not actually happening yeah until you do some of those moves with your buddies and find out how much it hurts and Mm -hmm. realize yeah those people wouldn't be back in the ring the next night well, then, I guess the next question is, when did you figure out that wrestling wasn't real? Oh, I think, I, I can't remember the specific time. I think, like I said, it's a combination of you're putting figure fours on your friends and you can't walk for three days, right? <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, wait a second, there's no way they're putting that much pressure on their legs. Those are big guys. I'm a, you know, 60-pound 10-year-old, you know, and that hurts me. I'm like, there's no way that these huge guys can do that to somebody else and it not hurt. Um, but I think over time, you know, it's just everybody telling you that it's fake and you're Mm -hmm. like, no, it's not. And then you start watching some of it and you're like, yeah, there's no way it can be real. Yeah. I think the period of time when I started realizing that, yeah, it's maybe not as real as you think. I think it was around the time of the undertaker. And the reason why is because you see this big morbid character coming out. He's got Paul bear. Oh, undertaker. (laughs) And he's got to earn and like, well, wait a minute, what the, what the hell's going on with this? This doesn't make any sense. And that's where I think like wrestling some took a weird turn and combining that with people telling you, oh yeah, wrestling's fake. Like, yeah, there might be something to this right now. I don't think that a mortician would sit there and think, hey, I don't like what I'm doing job wise. I'm going to go wrestle and bring an urn with some ashes in it. I agree. I mean, that's part of what I think we're going to talk about with the split between WWF wrestling and NWA to me. To me, NWA was a lot of just more realistic looking people, whereas WWF, it was all these huge, you know, you had King Kong Bundy, Hulk Hogan, you know, Jesse Ventura. All those guys were so big and just 
unhuman looking mm-hmm. that to me that that was the big difference like you know nwa to me looked a lot real their their storylines weren't as cheesy to me at the time so it seemed like yeah wwf was my sunday morning cartoon experience basically i'd come home from church and that would be on and i'd watch it and it was pretty you know like production wise it was great looking and you know a lot of interesting characters with crazy gimmicks but to me, NWA was just kind of a small, smaller wrestling, um, not quite as cheesy as AWA as far as production value. Like it was done, you know, where the mics were at an audible level every time and it, it looked good. But the characters themselves weren't overblown, you know, unrealistic people. Yeah, and I think segueing into our next part right now. So the way we're going to kind of approach this is I'm going to break down wrestling in two different decades. Uh, We're going to break it down in the 80s. We're going to break it down in the 90s. I'm not going past the 90s, and there's a particular reason for that. I guess I'll try to touch on later. But I think both those are the two decades where wrestling was probably at its most popular. But also, I think that it was also very heavily impactful culturally as well, depending on which wrestling you follow the most. So starting off, uh, with wrestling in the 80s. Uh, we kind of touched about some of this already. I mean, what wrestling was like for in the 80s. I mean, for me, it was about... It was like watching a soap opera. You'd, you know, gather, you know, at people's houses. I remember, like, for Saturday night main events, you would get to stay up late because they were always when Saturday Night Live was on. You would watch wrestling then, you know, with your family and others. I even remember, like, because uh, uh, we didn't have cable when I was growing up. My uh, grandma did. When I slept over at my grandma's, that's when I would watch... Uh, the Saturday night uh, wrestling from, of course, uh, NWA as well. And then sometimes you'd see a rare Clash of the Champions, too, that was being publicized on TV. But for you, what was wrestling like in the 80s? It was great, but yet kind of frustrating, too. Because it was right when, like I said, watching NWA, it was right when pay-per-views started coming along for wrestling. Mm -hmm. And being in South Georgia, we were in a small town, you couldn't even get the pay-per-views. So part of it was frustrating. Like Great American Bash would come on. It wasn't even available to get in our market. So I wouldn't see that for years until the, you know, the videotape came out. Or you'd often hear like when you'd watch commercials that it's going to be available on closed circuit, meaning, all right, we're going to go to a stadium and watch this or go to a bar. I'm 10 years old. I ain't going to any of those. Exactly. And a lot of times the, the main event would kind of end with a commercial, you know, like, while it was still going on, they're like, oh, we're out of time. See you next week. <laughs> out of time. Like, are you kidding me? Like, let me see one finish to a good match, because I've been watching the Mulkey Boys for three hours here get their ass kicked. You know, so that that was part of the frustration. But yet, looking back, I'm like, it was so much fun to just watch that. Um, outside of NWA, you know, AWA started playing on ESPN almost every afternoon. They'd play old AWA stuff. Mm -hmm. So that introduced me to the Von Ericks, who obviously, wrestling legacy, you know. I think there's one or two still alive, but... Actually, I think there's only one alive right now. I had a depressing chapter in professional wrestling in the Von Erich family, but... Yeah, I, I, AWA wrestling, I remember, like, would be on Sunday mornings, I think. It was, like, around 11 o'clock. So we'd get done from church, go home, and guess what? There was AWA wrestling, and you'd watch that. So there, there was always, I think, wrestling in so many different iterations. Like, on Saturdays, I think, during the day, earlier day, was 
uh, WWF superstars. And that's where you'd see like some popular guy destroy some jobber pretty much. So <laughs> it's like, here's Tito Santana versus Barry Jones. And nice. then Barry Jones would get himself just demolished. And yeah. it was just nothing but squash matches. You know, maybe had one match of actual consequence on there, but it was always against jobbers. Which, if you don't know what a jobber is, a jobber is actually a wrestler that's designed to lose. I, you know, I got to actually consider that there's people listening to this that don't know what jobbers are. So, <laughs> yeah, there's not really any jobbers anymore, right? I mean, well, you, you got your your guys that always lose, but I mean, they're all made up to be like they have a chance. Whereas back then, it was here's the Road Warriors versus the Mulkey Boys. Mm-hmm. Gee. They don't have much of a chance. This match is going to be about 10 seconds long. Well, I, and it's, we're going to see those guys basically get killed. And I'll touch on this later when we talk about modern wrestling. I think that's one of the bigger differences is that the the phrase you hear now when you hear, they don't use the word jobbers or anymore. They use the word developmental talent in the sense that, hey, here's guys designed to put other people over. And if you do a good enough job of it, maybe you'll make you something. But when you watched, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to hang on a second. Thank thank you, people, for your patience. And there we go. We are not going to hear that ding again the rest of this podcast, folks. Um, but going back to what I was saying is that when you watched like wrestling in the 80s, you knew who was going to win. There was no doubt about it most of the time. And you would see a match. And, like, and it was kind of good in some ways because, hey, here's a guy I like. And you see him win. And now the problem, I think, sometimes with more modern wrestling is there's a guy you might like. But if he pisses off management, guess what? This guy is going to be in the doghouse, and he's just going to lose a bunch of matches or rest meaningless matches. So Yeah, and I think it takes away from the buildup, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, back then, you would only see the superstars against these jobbers. So then the once in a while where you'd see an actual match against somebody else who was good, you really had no idea what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, it just seems like they roll out the same matches week in and week out. Pay-per-view, and then guess what? On Raw, it's the same match again. Yep, you got to have the rematch, and then the rematch of the rematch, and then a variation of the rematch. So, Now, here's, I think, one of the questions, and I think this is a question that I don't think you can have. What the? Come on. <laughs> liar. I am a liar, obviously. <laughs> but uh, as I'm going to say right now, I think this is an answer that I'm going to have that's not going to be a very concrete answer to a question I'm going to ask is that what was better in the 80s? The WWF, the NWA slash WCW, or the AWA? <laughs> well, I think I've made it clear. I, I was NWA all the way. Um, I still look back to some of those matches. It, it's just extremely entertaining. Like I said, the four horsemen were just tremendous in there. And it, a lot of those wrestlers rolled into WCW. But to me, NWA, back when it was in the small arena, um, just watching... Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express, Four Horsemen, Road Warriors back then. Um, Rick Rude had a small stint in NWA back then. That was really entertaining. Uh, Sting, the first time he came out, it was just, wow, who's this guy? You know, that was the first, to me, in my opinion, that Sting was the first WWF-type wrestler that NWA slash WCW had. I mean, he was larger than life, just very colorful. It was the blonde hair sting back then. Just everything about him was like, wow, this dude's huge. And you could tell he was going to be a huge star from day one. But I, I think the qualifier I want to use for the way I have to answer it is this, is that 
I feel that, and I think it's without doubt, that WWF is obviously more popular. And the reason why is when you have nationwide exposure, that's going to be give you what you're going to give you. And because of that popularity, they did have, probably the better way to put it is more cartoonish or larger-than-life characters that were in there. But th- that's what I grew up on, and that's why when I look back and watch some of the old NWA, WCW stuff, it's like, you know, this is a much more solid product. And I think the qualifier I'm going to use is that the WWF might have been more popular. The NWA, though, had much better characters and talent. That was a very clear difference. I mean, as much as somebody might love Hulk Hogan back in the 80s as a wrestler, if you had to think about it objectively, he was a horrible wrestler in so many different ways. Here's a guy that had a very limited repertoire of moves. You could always kind of clockwork tell when Hulk was going to do the Hulk Hogan type things. Whereas when you watch, you know, NWA and even to the WCW, you saw just a wide variety of different types of styles. You saw a lot more technical wrestling, which was harder to come by in the WWF. I feel that if the technical wrestling in WWF, I saw more in tag team wrestling than I ever saw in the regular wrestlers itself. So I think NWA, uh, it's definitely better characters. And I think one point for you, you said it was a lot more realistic. I feel that as NWA transitioned to WCW, and it's a problem, I think, is when you get bigger and you get more exposure, you can't be as risky or sometimes you have to pull things back sometimes because you're trying to appeal to a much more broader and wider audience. So instead of being just this Southern promotion in when they try becoming bigger, I think that was one of the bigger differences when they did switch to WCW is that, all right, we got to do things safer. We can't keep keep having guys bleeding all the time because we want to be that product that's out there. Everybody can see. Right. So for me, uh, I'll start with you, actually. What was great about wrestling in the 80s for you? Um. Like I said, I think a lot of what was great was just the fact that, to me, it was always, and it's the same way with music, is it something relatable? You know, like, is it something going on in your life? And like you mentioned, some of the guys in the WWF were so big. And, like, Hulk Hogan always annoyed me. I mean, he had a leg drop. That was his finishing move. Whereas, watching NWA, like the Mulkey Boys, if you don't know who the Mulkey Boys are, look them up. Those dudes weighed about 180 pounds combined and i felt as a 10 year old i could kick their ass <laughs> i enjoyed that about that you know what i mean it was like it's not brutus the barber beefcake walking out there and cutting somebody's hair every week it was it was these dudes getting their asses kicked that i'm like yeah i could do that to that guy too so to me that was like the funnest thing and and i the, the one match i look back to is being a, a rock and roll express fan and just getting an introduction to rick flair through him those guys on the mic back and forth were amazing. Like, and that was the one thing I really liked besides the wrestling was those wrestlers back then could talk. I mean, they were really good behind a mic and Ric Flair was just a master at it. You know, this was prior to Ric Flair turning into, I'm the crazy guy, you know, which kind of annoyed me later in his life. But back then he was just the jet flying, you know, womanizing, you know, on and on and on. Woman stealing, kiss stealing. Yeah, exactly. And it was so entertaining. So I think that there was one match in the studio, which I had recorded on my VCR. And I knew every single word that Tony Schiavone would say as the announcer to that match, because it was that good. Like just those guys back and forth fighting each other was just kind of a spur of the moment, you know, 
Rick Rick Flair's out there talking. Ricky Morton comes to the side and challenges them, and they go to the ring and start fighting. And it was the first time that I had really seen a match like that where it didn't seem like a planned match. Um, and it was just really entertaining. Yeah, I uh, I think one of the bigger differences in wrestling in the 80s that was great about wrestling in the 80s versus I think a lot of it now is that Big shows felt like big shows. If you watched a pay-per-view, you were watching cream, you know, cream in the crop wrestling. You were watching the best of the best. So if you got a WrestleMania, you got a SummerSlam, a Royal Rumble, you know, or in your case in the NWA, you got a Starcade. You were watching outstanding matches. And that was something that would fade away as time went on because one of the I think the bigger things in the 90s that took away from the 80s is that when it's hard to distinguish your pay-per-view sometimes from, let's say, your actual Monday night shows. Yeah, and you have a pay-per-view every month now, you know? Right. Where, where, where Back then, there was three or four key ones a year. Yeah, so, I mean, you had to tell a more effective story, and maybe this is also would help make people better in terms of interviews and mic work, is that if you're going to have a limited amount of exposure, you have to be very good as a storyteller if you're barely getting one hour a week of exposure to tell what needs to be done at this point. I think the other thing I loved about the 80s, too, is that titles had value. If you were the heavyweight champion, that was a big deal. If you were the tag team champion, big deal. Intercontinental champion. I'm not saying that wrestling today that there's no value to the titles, but it almost feels like the titles just uh, means to the end. It's not like, hey, we want to actually fight. It's instead, no, I have a you know petty squabble with you at this point, and oh, by the way, you happen to have the title, so I guess we're going to fight for the title yeah. versus actually trying to fight for the fact that, hey, I want to be the best in the world. I want to be the most prestigious wrestler I can be. So I feel that's one of the big things that's been kind of lost over the years is that titles had value and everything, it had impact. It was still fake. But they gave meaning to it, which is why you as the viewer would invest into it. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a great point on the titles. Because back then, you didn't hear about Ric Flair being the 17-time champion. Well, that means he lost it 16 times, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Back then, those guys that had the titles held them for a while. And, and the focus was on, hey, I want to get to that point. So it seemed a lot more legit. Whereas now, a guy walks out and he has the belt on, and I'm like, oh, He's the champion because you have no idea. Because, like I said, the the same guys fight constantly, and it's you know if if they don't win the title tonight, they might win it tomorrow, and then it's going to split, you know, switch again in a week. Yeah, in the WWF, you could probably in the eighties name all of their champions on two hands. Yeah, you had Bob Backlund, the Iron Sheik, Hulk Hogan. Um, Let's see. The Ultimate Warrior held a title at one time. Uh, Randy Savage held a title. can't remember if Ted DiBiase did. I don't think he did, but somebody in the Heenan family, I thought, had the title. But I think that's illustrating the point there is that Hogan had a title for like, you know, two to three years. I remember there was a lot made that the Honky Tonk Man is the Intercontinental Champion <laughs> held the title for over 300 some some days at that nice. point. So, I mean, that's where... It, they said this is what our product is, is that we're a sport. And I think when they segued into sports entertainment... All right, well, you took the sport out, so then you kind of made the titles arbitrary at that point. Um, for you, what was bad about wrestling in the eighties? Well, I, th- I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag there because right you you, you if you hated who had the title, 
then it was horrible. You know what I mean? Then you're like, really? Why aren't they giving this guy a chance? Mm -hmm. Like, let's let's see them have the title for a while. So I think that was part of my complaint, you know, but I agree. Like, like nowadays it's so watered down. It's not good. But back then it did mean so much that when your guy didn't get a shot at it, it drove you nuts, you know? Um, but like I said, living in Georgia and not being able to get some of the pay-per-views, I mean, the exposure these days, you, you get the WWE network, you can watch anything mm-hmm. at any time. And they've got NXT and, you know, you can get, you can get access to so much stuff. So you can always watch it. Whereas back then you were limited on the days, you know, yeah. I know, I know in Minnesota because I had friends here that were watching it where you, if you wanted to spend an entire wa- Saturday watching wrestling, it was available, you know? Down there, we had a one-hour show of NWA on Saturday night, and then Sunday morning, it was WWF from 12 to 1. So I I didn't get to see as much as I would have liked to back then. I think one of the, for me, one of the worst aspects of the 80s, and this really carried into the 90s, was I think, and it started around, more around the mid to late 80s, is over-the-top gimmicks. I think that's... I think that's when you started getting wrestlers that, as I said, with the WWF, became very cartoonish and even more so. I mean, back in the, you can't discount in the mid-80s that, all right, you had wrestlers like, hi, I'm Hillbilly Jim. Hi, I'm Tito Santana. You know, I mean, you had you had characters that were characters. I wouldn't say they were caricatures, but I would say that they were characters. When you got, though, into the late 80s, though, it's like, all right, well, hi, I'm the Mountie. And I'm like, well, wait a second here. So somebody that's a Canadian law enforcement individual is right now becoming a <laughs> professional wrestler. I'm the Undertaker. And it gets even worse because some of the other gimmicks that the WWF has thrown out there, like, I'm the Red Rooster. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it, it, it got bad, I think, at certain points where all of a sudden, like, hey, uh, we got this guy. His uh, name's Coco. We'll give him a bird. And yeah. <laughs> Coco, be aware, go out there. That wasn't as prominent, I think, in WCW or NWA until the WCW days. When yeah, the WCW they, came around, you got the national exposure. I think that's when they kind of had to start transitioning to that same type of gimmicks as well. Yeah, and it was unfortunate. And it's it's a hard balance, right? Because you don't want all AWA Playboy Buddy Rose type <laughs> characters that just get annoying. But yeah, if they overdid it, it's, and they still do to this day to a certain degree, and it... Those characters just never, like I said, they're unrelatable to me. Yeah. And they always drove me nuts. Well, and part of it is that when you start making a character that cartoonish, then once again, what is their motivation? Because it's it's along the lines, like when you make it an occupational thing, well, I got sick of this job. I'm going to go wrestle now and become a champion. Or worse, you have like, yeah, I got this weird gimmick. All right, but you want the championship? Yep, because of this motivation. And again, it's... When it started getting a little nonsensical around that point. Now, this is probably the more difficult question to ask, but who was your favorite 80s wrestler? Like I said, for me, it was all Rock and Roll Express, so Ricky Morton was great. Um, Really enjoyed him. Uh, But, man, there were so many good ones. Like I said, the the Road Warriors. uh, I'll never forget, like, seeing them advertise, which... To me, it was kind of the first like big advertisement that they'd have commercials for, you know, a pay per view coming up was the first scaffold match against 
the the midnight rockers where the, the road warriors and the promo were on top of buildings dropping pumpkins off of it like that was gonna what was gonna happen to the midnight rockers falling off the scaffold and just their interview skills with the road warriors was just amazing talking about you know when we were born my mom couldn't afford uh incubators so she put us in a frying pan <laughs> just shit like that was just so classic to me and those guys were relatable i mean they weren't so over the top and they their characters weren't so ridiculous but yet those were big dudes and watching their promos and just the way that they would manhandle everybody they faced was had to make them like for me the most memorable out of that time yeah i think for me i'll get to my favorite 80s wrestler in a second but i think the honorable mentions there's so many tag teams i used to love in the 80s because you, there was more of a fluid motion to it. There was a lot more, I guess, because of the way the match unfolded, a lot more story. I mean, you had guys like the Road Warriors, you know, the, the big brutish guys. Even the ripoff, like in Demolition. Demolition still was a very brutal and savage team, too. Yes, they were. You had, like, one of the guys, the moves I saw that kind of just blew me away is when I first saw Scott Steiner do a Frankensteiner. This big guy just jump up and flip a guy down like that. It's like, well, that, goddamn, that is an impressive thing right there. <laughs> watching, like, the British Bulldogs, even watching, like, cheesy, bad, like, tag teams like the Killer Bees, as an example. But they all had the fluidity and motion to it. But if I had to say who the my favorite 80s wrestler was it it's it's a very tricky one there's a lot of different ways i came out on this but and i guess if you were to ask that the, the best way to qualify this is that if you were to ask 80s mike this question 1980s mike would probably have said hulk hogan until the ultimate warrior came around and then that would have been probably his two right there but if you're talking to me now and with a little bit more age wisdom and perspective i would say it was actually randy savage and the reason why is that, to your point, he was one of probably the WWF's best talkers and best interviewers. You put him out there, and he wasn't the kind of guy that would spout off a bunch of, listen to your brother, if you eat your vitamins, say your prayers, you know, <laughs> just over a weekend and week out for the most part, or, you know, just some cheesy, I'll destroy you. No, Savage went up there, and he had a class and kind of style of his own, but as a worker, he was an amazing worker. I you look at the fact that Savage only won I think one WWF title in the 80s and that's a testimony to the fact that he was such a good bad guy. He was a guy that was bad, they made him a good guy. All right, he was okay then, but he was always his best when he worked in his fringe areas and matches like as an example him and Ricky Steamboat in WrestleMania 3. Such an amazing match when you watch that and he was he was an amazingly athletic person. Later on in life, you'd always hear that he worked very stiff and that, you know, guys he fought got hurt and everything. And that's maybe why a lot of his stuff looks so amazing because he was actually hurting people. But I think that was one of the guys that was very well-rounded. Had I been maybe more accessible to NWA in the days, I may have picked probably somebody, let's say, like Ric Flair in the sense that, you know what, same sort of qualities. Here's a guy that is a perfect bad guy. You can make him a good guy because he's popular enough because of that. But, you know, it's just the mic work aspect of it that, you know, he was a guy that you wanted to hear what he had to say. And that yeah, and, made... and you throw Miss Elizabeth into the mix, and hey, good for him. <laughs> Remember there's that whole storyline where there was, like, George the Animal Steel who was enamored with Miss Elizabeth, and he, yeah. Yeah, Once Awkward. again, over-the-top cartoon. <laughs> um, for me, I think one of my favorite 80s wrestler gimmicks – and this is a retroactive one, is going to be the Four Horsemen. 
when you look at the what the four horsemen brought to the table as an actual gimmick, you look at hey, it's one of the first really well known effective stables. You're talking about a stable that man, every member of the group at one point all held a title, which was amazing at the time and almost it kind of gave credence and credibility to about how dominant they were. And to be very clear, as wrestlers, they were all kind of pretty good wrestlers for the most part. They weren't the most dangerous wrestlers. Well, yeah, you take Arne Anderson by himself. If he was a single wrestler guy, mm-hmm. how boring would he have been? Yeah, I mean, Arne- but you put him in that group, and man, they were dangerous. Right. You had him. Same thing with Tully Blanchard. He's a guy that's a great wrestler by himself. Kind of boring. Put him with the other guys. Oh man, they're all going to get together. And then you had like the rotating horseman member slot, depending on you know. Hey, we got Ollie. Oh, we're sick of Ollie. We got Barry Windham. Hey, Barry Windham's gone. And then they kind of started switching everybody in, including Luger. And- yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's one of those gimmicks that really just brought a lot to the table. And I kind of, I think, as I said, I wish I would have had more access to NWA wrestling back then just to see more of those exploits. I've watched a lot of that stuff, you know, now on video and stuff. And it's like, yep, they nailed it perfectly fine. But... I can only. I think that's why your passion for them is more because that's what your primary wrestling was compared to what mine was at the time. How about you? What was your favorite gimmick from uh, the eighties? Well, that's pretty pretty awesome. You went with one of my favorites with the four horsemen. I'm gonna switch it and go with WWF and uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. I mean, come on, you're putting a snake on a guy after he loses his match. That kind of contributed to me thinking this has got to be real because I absolutely hate snakes, and I'm thinking. There's no way that you could pay me enough to have some dude put a huge snake on me after I just got my butt kicked. So I think his gimmick was really entertaining. It was a little little dumb after a while, but at the time, to me, it was like, wow, man, that's that's crazy. I wouldn't I wouldn't let somebody do that to me. I think one thing that I'll you know call back on at this point is that. With the WWF is more popular. I said the NWA had better characters. I think there was, though, a window in the WWF, and I would say this would be around 87 and 88. That's when the WWF realized, man, we have nobody that can work on Mike or nobody that works on a psychological level. So they brought in three guys that could do that perfectly. First, you mentioned Jake the Snake Roberts. The second one, I would say, would be Ted DiBiase. Oh. And I think the third one, I'd say, would be Rick Rude. You brought in three yes. guys right there. All of them heels. Jake was a heel most of the time, but he then turned face. But these are guys that, once again, they weren't the biggest guys out there compared to what everybody else was in the WWF. But they found a way to make the crowd hate them in ways you never thought the crowd would ever get enraged. You're right. With Jake the Snake, it's the psychology of just the snake. But you listen to his interviews, and his interviews were just downright amazing. You took Ted DiBiase debasing people for just money, and it was just downright... It, you laugh at it, but also, man, what a prick. Now, was that 80s or 90s? Because I think that's more 90s, right? No. That, Ted DiBiase, was he late 80s? He was late 80s. He came in because, if I recall correctly, it wasn't until WrestleMania 4 or 5 that uh, Ted DiBiase paid Andre the Giant to win the uh, title off of Hogan. And then that became kind of a thing right there. But that was late 80s. I want to say it was about 87, 88. It was only about a two to three hour or two to three year window that was on there. And, you know, that's when Rick Rude came over. And once again, airbrush tights. (laughs) Yep. But yeah, Ted DiBiase with Virgil, you know, the everybody has a price. Such a great gimmick. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? 
so entertaining. You could go anywhere with that, and it was just awesome. Yeah, that's that's where like some of the gimmicks that the WWF had. They realized we need to poach talent from elsewhere because our guys we have are good, but we need some guys that are definitely a lot more able to work out that mic. And I think the only guys they had before that point that really were able to work a mic like that was, uh, you know, as I said, Savage was one of them. Roddy Piper is probably another one. Yeah, he was pretty good. But Roddy Piper also kind of faded and disappeared, you know, come mid-80s as well. He had a good two, three-year run with Hogan, but then kind of disappeared, so. Yeah, just for me, Roddy just, there's never any development, right? It was kind of just the same stick over and over, and then, yeah, like you said, kind of by the mid, it was like, okay, we've seen it. Yeah, I mean, people like to say that he was probably Hulk Hogan's most iconic, you know, nemesis in some ways. It all depends. I mean, you look at all the people that thrown at Hogan. I think it was memorable, but you never really looked at Piper and thought Piper's going to beat Hogan. Right. Yeah, it wasn't the, the quite the classic matchup that you'd like to think of that it was at the time. Right. Now, uh, most hated 80s wrestler. Who was the one that you hated the most? In a good way, Ric Flair. I think for all the reasons that we mentioned. Right. That dude was just brilliant. You know, so he was easy to hate, but love to hate guy. Um, in a I can't stand this guy way, I've got to go with Hacksaw. Oh! Yeah, Jim Hacksaw Duggan was just, to me, the absolute worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Stupid 2 by 4 No sense. The guy just comes out and yells. Horrible wrestler, in my opinion. Just never did anything. I mean, we talked about some of the guys, like even Hogan. I mean, his finishing moves, a leg drop, which back in the 80s, that's what it was. But that guy just was so dumb to me. I just didn't get it. Mine. So this is going to be an interesting one because we probably touched nothing on this at all. My most hated 80s wrestler, Greg Gagne. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why, so to help explain Greg Gagne, we've talked a lot about WWF and NWA, and I think because that was the clear number one and number two organization of wrestling. The number three organization was AWA Wrestling, based out of my hometown in Minnesota. Now, to give some story about AWA is that AWA had the ability to be a bigger thing. Probably one of the things that played the AWA was that it had a lot of its talent poached away from the WWF, and NWA took a lot of it too. But I think the bigger problem I always had with the AWA, why I'd say this, is that the founder of the owner of NWA was Vern Gagne. AWA, you mean? Sorry, yeah, right. AWA was Vern Gagne. And Vern was just this hard nails wrestler. Just, he's the epitome of like your old style, you know, wrestler that you have. Now, he had a son, and his son was Greg Gagne. And Greg, imagine the most average looking person in the world. <laughs> and he was an individual that was always being put in these big matches. And you had to sit there, man, who's his dad? Did his dad get him his job? Yes, his dad did get him that job. And I I remember watching wrestling when I was young and watching uh, AWA wrestling, and it drove me nuts because here was a guy that was in these big matches, and I hated him. I'm like, why is this guy wrestling this match? They have so many other better wrestlers. Why is this guy being pushed in front of me all the time? You know, hey, we need a good tag team. Give them with, get them together with Kurt Henning, and they would be tag team champions and fight. But it's like, wow, I like Kurt, but I don't like Greg. Greg yeah. Greg's a horrible guy, and and that brings up a great point because I think when when Shane McMahon first started wrestling, I was that's what it reminded me of. I'm like, oh shit, here we go now. You know, 
Vince has to get his son involved and how bad was this in the AWA? I'm like, no. And then Shane come out and he's actually brilliant. You well, know what I mean? I, I so think, it was like, oh, thank God. This dude actually can work. Well, the biggest credit I'll give to Shane is that he might not have been as good, but he was willing to learn. He was willing to sacrifice himself, and I think he was willing to pay the price. He wanted to show other guys, hey, guys, I know I'm not a wrestler, but I'm not going to be a dead weight. I'm going to do what I can to make yeah. you guys look good. And That dude's taking some risks. Yeah, I mean, I I was at a SummerSlam uh, when it was here in Minneapolis in uh, nine or uh what was it, 99 or yeah, 2000? I, so. I, I was at that pay-per-view when it was at the uh, Target Center, and I remember his bump where he fell off the top yeah. of the Titantron. And, I was there, too. That was, it was unreal. But, yeah, you see that, and then you see, like, you know, Greg Gagne trying to, like, you know, give an interview, and it's like listening to, like, I don't know, just a guy reading, like, HR paperwork manuals. Exactly. You. Yeah, it was pretty bad. So that that's probably the wrestler that I hated the most in the 80s, and... It's funny because it's not the one I watch the most, but every time I watch that promotion, that was the guy that would turn me off on that, on that promotion was that. Um, otherwise, what about uh, most hated 80s gimmick? What was your most hated 80s gimmick? Seriously, a two-by-four. Again, <laughs> Jim Duggan. It just, I, I can't express how much I just could not stand that whole thing. It just drove me nuts. First of all, you had Hillbilly, right? Yep. It's the same fucking character. Like, let's move on already. But Jim was just dorkier and, like, made no sense and just yelled, Urgh. it was like watching the guy from Goonies out there every single week. Yeah, you just watch him try to do an interview. I mean, it's like watching my dad, you know, at about 10 at night trying to put him to bed because he drank too much. <laughs> and it's like, all right, you, you can't fall asleep in the chair. Let's go upstairs. Yeah. That's what it was. Like I said, it's sloth from fucking Goonies. It just, Ruth, baby. <laughs> you know, just that's how that character was to me, and it just was not good. Uh, for me, my most hated 80s gimmick, it's, a, I think, a series of gimmicks. Back in, the, as I said, 87, 88 is probably when, as I said, that's when WWF brought in a lot of great talkers. But then they also brought in a lot of bad gimmicks, and such gimmicks, one I've already mentioned, was like the Red Rooster. It, it was a horrible thing of taking established good wrestlers and giving them horrible gimmicks. Like, Terry Taylor, you're a well-established wrestler. What we like to do is, how do you feel about dyeing a streak of your hair red? And then you just basically go out there and crow like a rooster. And he's like, I, I, I don't like that idea at all. Excuse me? Yeah, well, all right, here's a sack of money. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great idea. They took Owen Hart and they put him in a mask and said, hey, your brother and your family have a lot of pedigree. We want you to be the blue blazer. Just put this mask on and go wrestle. Even Dusty Rhodes with the polka dots later on. Yeah, Dusty with the polka dots. I mean, that's when, for some reason, something just got really weird in the WWF around that time. And it just, it developed some of the worst gimmicks out there were just... Like, even when they brought in one of the Von Erichs, it's like, all right, we've got a Von Erich. What do we do? Uh, he's the Texas Tornado. Yeah. And like, oh, no. So cheesy. Don't do not do that. And as I said, that was the tail end of the 80s. But I think that's when you can tell that wrestling was taking a huge, huge stark turn. So, so that probably covers the 80s. Let's move on to the 90s. So, talking about 90s. Um. I would say this. I mean, what was wrestling like for you in the 90s? Uh, don't have much memory of it in the early years of the 90s because, frankly, I just stopped paying attention. Um, you know, I graduated from high school in 93. 
was in a band at the time, so just didn't have much time for wrestling. I was too busy doing other things, started working, you know, crazy hours with you at a place to be unnamed. Um, <laughs> uh, it, are we that ashamed of where we worked? <laughs> no, the White Castle. I mean, it's so many good memories. How can I mean, you not? Come bring on, it the BC boys rapped about White Castle for that's Christ's true. Sake. That's Can't true. Be all that bad. I got a lot of free food there, which probably wasn't good for anybody else around me, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, early '90s, not so much. But when you're talking, you know, later on, the Attitude Era coming in. That was pretty awesome. I mean, I I think I mirror exactly what you're saying at this point in the sense that I stopped watching wrestling a lot during the uh, early 90s. And I think part of it was for two reasons. One is that I was also in high school, so there were so many other things that captivate my attention. I think, though, the other big factor, too, is that that's when there was the breakdown and there was the steroid scandals. And the product changed dramatically, I think, in both federations and I think with WWF, they had the steroid scandal where essentially you lost all these big guys and then, hey, they had to defend the big guys. Like, oh, um, no, he didn't he didn't use drugs to get that big. No. And that's why you saw guys like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart come to the forefront, which I'm not saying these guys are bad wrestlers. They were great technical wrestlers, but they weren't also the most interesting guys at the time. And I think that's why things were easier to fade. But when you got to the mid-90s and you got to the Monday Night Wars, that's when wrestling was a cultural phenomenon. That's where wrestling bled so much into every aspect of your life in many many different ways back then. You would like sit there, go and like flip back and forth between WWF Raw and Nitro and just try to figure out what's going on. And So yeah, I, I have to definitely agree in that sense that I think the early 90s gave you such a lackluster product. It was easy to fade and dip out. But then when everybody started talking about things, when people started talking about, you know, the NWO as an example, all of a sudden that's when WCW became great. And I would say it's hard to say when WWF started repicking up their momentum. They didn't have, I think, one significant moment. I would say if there was a significant wrestler that helped alter and help jumpstart that for the WWF, I would say it would be Stone Cold Steve Austin. Once he started getting more prominence, I think that's what helped make wrestling what it was in the 80s. Now, the question now that we had, and this will be an interesting one, because we're taking AWA out of the equation here in this question because they stopped existing in the early 90s. But who was the better wrestling organization in the 90s? Was it the WWF, WCW, or Radical Upstart ECW? Ah, uh, For me, it was WWF. Uh, WCW to me seemed like they were doing what the WWF did in the late eighties, right? Like the characters started getting bigger and some of the ideas worked. Some of them were so over the top and stupid that it didn't work. And ECW, to be honest, I just didn't have that much exposure to it at the time. Um, obviously I knew it existed and once in a while I'd watch it and it kind of had a weird, Weird vibe to me. Like, the wrestling was really intense, mm-hmm. which was awesome. But the characters, to me, weren't very strong. And some of the interviews were just so 80s, like, oh, I'm going to kick his ass, that it just kind of annoyed me. You know what I mean? It was like, eh. Whereas WWF, what, what, what to me stood out was those were guys that were just a few years older than us that understood the value of having mic skills, that understood the value of, yeah, we want to push this sport. We don't want it to be, 
so just, you know, leg drop is my finishing move. So to me, that's where like, it gets no better. It was a fresh breath, breath of air, uh, a breath of fresh air. <laughs> it's like you've been drinking or something weird <laughs> to see, to see guys that could actually talk and talk well, and yet do wrestling moves and crazy ladder matches and on top of the ring, you know, action cage matches, everything that was just what you kind of were hoping it would get to in the eighties. These guys were able to actually do it and have, you know, great interview skills. Yeah. This is a very difficult question for me to answer. And the reason why is because I think each of those organizations, you brought up some great points, did something amazingly well in the nineties. I think, when you look at the WWF, they completely blew in the early 90s. I mean, some of their gimmicks and some of the things they did were some of the worst things out there. When you look at the Attitude Era of wrestling, which started roughly around mid-96 to 97 and went on for about three or four years, that was probably some of the most entertaining wrestling that you would have probably found on television at that time. Or ever. Or ever. <laughs> I'll agree. It was that good. And I think what made the WWF so great at that point is that they realized they they had the opposite problem of WC, uh, WCW, and I'll touch on that in a second, is that, hey, we don't have a lot of talent anymore. A lot of our talent was poached away, so we got to get good at being creative, and they were amazing at being creative. They found ways to take guys that were would have been originally you know, C or D list guys anywhere else and found ways to help propel them with either interesting gimmicks or just overall just themes that just help push them to the forefront. Now with WCW, I will say that from 1996 to mid 97, WCW was the king when it came to, I think, overall intrigue. And I buy that. Those were the NWO, NWO years. When that gimmick happened, that changed the landscape of wrestling because what that did is it permanently knocked down that fourth wall where, hey, listen, guys, we're going to stop you know, saying that these other guys don't exist. They do exist. And we're going to start introducing other aspects and just that you've never even thought of or heard of before. So the NWO, I think, was an amazing concept. And I'll touch on this later became such a horrible concept. I've never seen probably something mishandled as poorly as the NWO as what WCW did. Now, that being said, as I said, I only give maybe WCW credit for a year and a half of solid, you know, stories, but WCW had all this amazing talent they refused to use. When I look at some of the wrestlers that they had on hand, who went on to be better elsewhere. And I don't want to even say that. That's that's doing a disservice to some of these guys. These guys were great in WCW. It's just that, hey, you guys are going to be the opening matches. You guys are going to be the mid-carters. You look at what they did with their cruiserweight division, with the luch doors and everything else, that is some of the most fantastic wrestling you were going to ever see. You take a look at guys and talents they had, like uh, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, even taking guys like Diamond Dallas Page and finding ways to actually innovate and do things with them. Now, yeah. Page would escape that, but you had guys that just weren't being used, and all just because, well, you can't use Mike that well, so guess what? You know what? We're just going to waste your talent. And then, so I, touching on the last part with ECW, and I, I want to give ECW the credit where it's due. To your point, they were doing amazingly insane things. You're right. They weren't the best speakers. You're right. The plots weren't the best plots. 
But if you wanted to see the best what the fuck wrestling, you would watch ECW and yep. you would just sit there in shock at some of the things. Like some of my favorite matches I've seen on uh, ECW, I have DVDs in the corner of the room where we're recording that verify this. Was there was matches like with Rob Van Dam versus um, Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn, who's just this little piece of garbage wrestler anywhere else. But they would have these matches where I can see it one match where you legitimately see where Jerry Lynn is knocked unconscious and has a concussion. And they still wrestle for another 10 minutes in ways that you sit there and think they sacrifice their bodies beyond belief. So yeah. I, I think. Well, and it's a different time, right? Because then everybody knew wrestling wasn't real. Right. You know, it wasn't like the 80s where they were trying to cover it up. But you're watching this as a fan and you're like, they're just insane. Which was really intriguing about ECW. It's like, you know what? I can't do these things, but I can sacrifice my body. And these guys sacrifice their bodies. And some of them would go on to have success with, you know, either WCW or ECW or they were recruited away. Some guys made it to the big show and just couldn't do it. I mean, it was just a different type of thing when they said, all right, that's great that you can jump through five tables at once, but we don't do that here. And it's like, well, then what did you sign before? Yeah. Oh, so that the other organization wouldn't get you. <laughs> exactly. Um, for you, what was great about wrestling in the 90s? Oh, like I said, just I, I think everybody kind of caught up with ECW after a while. Um, I always look at the Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon match in WrestleMania. The ladder match? Or? Yeah, the ladder match. Yeah. Can't remember what year, but watching those guys do that. I mean, they destroyed each other, right? And that was kind of the start for me of of getting back into it. I, I I watched those matches, and I'm like, man, these guys are doing everything. And they're great talkers. It's good characters. It wasn't the typical 80s WWF stuff where, like, they're so over the top and just ridiculous that you can't get into it, you know? And you could have a big guy against a small guy. I mean, Shawn Michaels ain't the biggest guy in the world, but they made those matches great. And for me, that's what really got me into 90s wrestling. Uh, for me, I would say that, and I I think I'm doing a disservice to a few other things here at this point, because I brought up WWF, WCW, and ECW. I think one of the things that made the 90s great, and I think a byproduct of that was because of what was going on elsewhere, was the technical wrestling in the 90s was probably at its best. Yeah. And the reason why is because mainstream wrestling started adopting things that were being done over in Japan. They were adopting things that were being done in Mexico. You started seeing a lot better technical wrestlers. You started seeing a lot better aerial wrestlers. I mean, the cruiserweight division that WCW had was probably one of the most entertaining aspects of them. When I watched WCW, I watched because of the cruiserweight division, actually. I sat there and said... All right, who we got? We got Juventud and Rey Mysterio. Awesome. This is going to be a great match right here because you watched two guys where they were doing such dangerous maneuvers, but their timing had to be so precise in order to make sure that, hey, I don't hurt myself, but I also don't hurt the guy I'm fighting as well. And you would see other things. Like you watch guys like Dean Malenko, whose technical wrestling was just amazing. And it's it was, I think, a... It was a renaissance in many different ways that unfortunately would be pushed to the side as you got into the 2000s. But if you wanted to see some of the best wrestling, I mean, one of the things that people always credited Bret Hart with was being one of the best technical wrestlers around. And he was a great technical wrestler, but when you watch what everybody else then started doing, it 
kind of paled him in almost some ways when you saw how great everybody else was. So. Well, just to capitalize on that, that, that's exactly what made it great, is you used to only see that like on the little guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be high flyers, and it was fun to watch. But yeah, you felt like something was missing. In the 90s, it was on every level. Your smaller wrestlers, your medium-sized wrestlers, your big, they were all doing these unbelievable athletic things that you just didn't see in the 80s. 80s, the big guys would be able to drop elbows and drop leg drops. You know, that that was it. Whereas in the 90s, the big guys were doing crazy stuff. And you'd see it on every level where it seemed like everybody was raising their game because of that. Yeah, like in ECW, he was a big guy and he was kind of a tool when he went to WCW. But Mike Awesome, when you say like a guy that's like 6'5 plus that's doing like a suicide dive over the top ropes. Yeah. That's the most frightening thing in the world when you see a guy that big <laughs> launch himself and get that much air. So, you know, that that was what was great about the 90s for me. If you want to say what was bad about the 90s, at some point in the 90s, shock value was valued over content. It got to a point like, look what just happened! And it's like, all right, this just happened. And you're you're first you're shocked, but then you realize that it just happens every week. It stops being as shocking as an example. I mean, one thing I'll say is this: you see the NWL come out and like do something shocking, great. You see them come out and do every week. Guess what? It's not shocking anymore because you just then expect. Well, let's see about this time in the show. The NWO is going to come out and they're going to probably attack this guy. The other thing that drove me nuts, I think, about '90s wrestling is that guest stars helped ruin wrestling. That's when <laughs> when wrestling got. That's what I had down too. It's, you bring out the you know Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone and come on. Well, and that's the problem is that they got popular enough. Like, hey, we need to find ways to branch out in other mediums. The best way to branch out in other mediums is by bringing in the stars of these mediums. So you're right. You had Rodman. You had Mike Tyson that was in the WWF. Lawrence Taylor. You had Jay Leno as an example in a tag team match. But I think nothing is probably worse in the 90s in wrestling than not only bringing in David Arquette, but also having David Arquette win your championship. Now, here's the thing. I believe this is 99-2000, probably more 2000. So guess what? It probably technically disqualifies. But I think everything was building up to that point. Yeah, yep. And I think that it was also one of those things. So, hey, we got David Arquette to do this Ready to Rumble movie. Let's see what happens when we bring him in. Oh, we're going to make him a wrestler now, too. No, we're going to give him the most prestigious title, the same title that Ric Flair held. David Arquette held, too, guys. Yeah. And I, I think that was the thing that really just made 90s wrestling when it got to a point where it's great, but then it just got over the top. Yeah, it was it was exactly that. Because bringing Pete Rose out in a chicken suit is one thing. Yeah, you got some laughs on it, and it ended up on every channel of, hey, guess what Pete Rose was doing this weekend? But then when you start bringing in every celebrity possible just to, like, get on the news, just as a wrestling fan, it was annoying. Yeah. It's like you don't need to do that. The main event is Diamond Dallas Page and Jay Leno versus Dennis Rodman and Hulk Hogan. Like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of horseshit is this that I have to put up with? And, you know, for them, it's like, well, it's going to bring in the the casual wrestling viewer. That's great. But it doesn't mean the casual wrestling viewer is going to then keep watching wrestling. And that was, I think, their intent is that we keep rolling out the guest stars. And guess what? We're going to get more fans. And it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, For you. My answer is one that will not be a popular answer, but who is your favorite 90s wrestler? You don't want to take this first? Do you want me to take it first? I'll, I'll go. I'll go. And For me, this is 
probably the best wrestler of all time. And I, I realize he's a huge celebrity now that makes way too much money doing what he does. But The Rock came in in 96. So it's late in the decade. Like I said, early in the decade, I kind of lost interest. But to me, he is the best wrestler of all time. One, his mic skills are amazing. Two, he didn't have that many moves. I mean, we were just talking about that's kind of what made the 90s great is like bigger guys were able to do a lot. But he's got an elbow. Hey, my elbow can take you out. But you know what? He sold that shit like no one ever could. He was amazing at that. And to me, that's what made him so great was just, one, his his on-mic skills will never be touched, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He he was that good. And just facial expressions, you know, the eyebrow, you, you name it. To me, he is the best wrestler that has ever existed, just on pure entertainment value. Well, and look what he had overcome. Because when he came in and he was the... You know, Rocky Maivia, and he had one of the most cheesiest, hey guys, <laughs> I'm the happiest guy in the world. And then they tried to give him some edge, like, well, you're in the nation of domination now. And there you go. And he was in that. I mean, he had to overcome quite a bit. And he did. I think that's, as I said, I think that's a testimony of what the WWF did very well in the late 90s is that, all right, this isn't working. We got to pivot. And then, hey, Rocky, what do you want to do? Well, what do I want to go to this approach? Same thing with Stone Cold. It's like, all right, you're supposed to be the game master, Ted DiBiase's protege. And then he's like, no, I'm going to go and do this thing. Well, and that's the thing that, that I loved about it is It seemed like the wrestlers at, at that in, in that, you know, in the late 90s, they actually said, no, I don't want to do that shit anymore because it's stupid. Let me try this. And Vince surprisingly let him do it. You know, based on everything I know about Vince, he's very controlling oh, to yeah, this day. Absolutely. Like. Hunter wants to do a lot of things with storyline and where he wants to go. Um, that Vince is like, no, I, I don't want to do that. Well, That's not how I roll. And there's a character right there. Look at Hunter. I'm the snooty Englishman. And then he went on to go do DX. Yeah, exactly. Once again, a pivot. You had a guy where, hey, we want you to be Mason the Mutilator. Well, no, I don't want to do that. How about I be Mankind? All right, you can do that, Mick Foley. And then Mick Foley, he not only pivots once, he pivots two and three times in the WWF career and does things where you sit there and it's like, yeah, we know this guy's willing to sacrifice his body, but he's so likable, we're going to you mm-hmm. know, make sure we like him. So, I mean, there's... Well, his gimmicks from Cactus Jack to freaking, you know, whatever. It's so different, but yet he was so good mm-hmm. that you didn't care what he was doing. It was It felt like if he was more able to be himself... It, it connected with everybody. And that's what was great about The Rock. Like, it just, he didn't have to have a gimmick other than him just being who he was, talking, and that was enough. It didn't matter that his finishing move was the rock bottom or a stupid elbow drop or what, you know. Like, the wrestling skill didn't have to be that good, even though he was very, he sold it well. Essentially, I mean, he w- was just good all around. WWF let the wrestlers be personalities, where WCW. You're all kind of Legos to us. You're interchangeable. We're going to put you in this role, and you'll kind of go along with it. And uh, once again, some I'll touch on later when we talk about another aspect of the '90s. But my favorite '90s wrestler. This is this is one thing that this was my favorite wrestler in the '90s. And I had to ask myself when I was thinking about who to say: Is this still the same person I'm going to name? And the reason why this is difficult because this person went on to do absolute horrible monstrosities. And what I mean by that is my favorite wrestler of the 90s was Chris Benoit. 
touchy subject. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. But no, he he was amazing. There there was no wrestler that I saw wrestle with more intensity than Chris Benoit. When we talk about sacrificing the body, if I were to watch a Chris Benoit match, he would never phone it in. He would sacrifice himself to make that match look good. I will tell you, making his move being the flying headbutt off the top row probably helped contribute to his later problems to help make sure there's full disclosure here. Chris Benoit, amazingly physical wrestler. Guy couldn't talk. He was never going to be the guy that was on the mic skills, but he was the guy that you would put in a match and you knew that it was going to be a great match that he would push. Unfortunately, there was a situation that happened in 97 where there's still speculation and nobody will ever fully say why, but... He uh, unfortunately did a murder-suicide where he killed his wife and his son, and then he killed himself. Now, there's statements stating that when they did the uh, autopsy work that his brain was damaged to the point of dementia that would be normally typical of a person in their late, late, late age. And that brings up a, a sore subject I'll address later in the sense of concussions and wrestling and I think that's I think that's one of the things that makes wrestling in the past horrible is that all the things that we're applauding right now and saying were such an amazing things in the nineties, it pays a price and that price I think comes out more later on during the point. But going going back onto what the topic was with a favorite nineties wrestler, he Benoit had a lot of things that was easy to check mark on. He was clearly the most talented horseman of the group at the time when you look at what everybody else was doing. I mean Christ, you had Steve Mongo McMichael at the time, which was a meathead. <laughs> Arn Anderson was too injured to be able to go on in a career, and Ric Flair was even entering the twilight of his career. But going beyond that, I mean, here's a guy, some of his WCW stuff was just amazing, his matches that he had with, like, uh, Kevin Sullivan with his, you know, no disqualification matches against Raven. He even went on to win the title itself in WCW. When he went over to WCW, they they still unleashed him and he was still an amazing force. So I it's one of those things that to be honest, he was my favorite wrestler in the nineties. The hard thing is that, you know, when you look at the man and what the man has done, it's hard to say, Hey, can you still respect a man that's done that bad things? And I I wanna give the benefit of the doubt that, hey, because of maybe things and injuries that he's had, that's what drove him what to do. It doesn't excuse in any way what happened. That's something that should never happen itself, but the state of this is that the guy was a great wrestler, and I think the price of his style, unfortunately, was far too high in the end. So that, that was who my favorite 90s wrestler was. Now, uh, favorite 90s gimmick. So uh, I'll go first on this one. My favorite 90s gimmick was pretty uh, easy to think about in some ways because I had to sit there and think, who is the most memorable wrestler of the late 90s? And to your point, The Rock had so many amazing moments. And you take a look at, you know, guys, every all the WWF wrestlers we mentioned had such amazing personalities. But if I had to say what my favorite 90s gimmick, I would say it's the guy that was working in a company that was such a vacuum and void but still found a way to be that personality. I will say it's Chris Jericho. Because Chris Jericho, when he started out in WCW, he was Lionheart Chris Jericho. He was this lightweight wrestler which had amazing technical skills, but he was kind of really milk toast and boring. Until he became Chris Jericho. And by that, when they finally let Chris Jericho do what he wanted to do, I would say that even to this day, Chris Jericho is probably one of my favorite assholes in wrestling. Oh, yeah. Just such a great talker, right? I mean, that's... And and again, not a big guy. So to to survive in that era when you had 
Stone Cold and The Rock and everybody else. Just it's impressive. I mean, he was, the, a, he was a good wrestler, and he could back it up. And the weird thing is, is that WCW gave him the carte blanche to sit there and say, "All right, what do you want to do?" And one of my favorite Chris Jericho moments from WCW is that he had a feud going with Dean Belenko, the Man of a Thousand Moves. So what does Chris Jericho do? He says he knows four more moves than Dean Malenko, <laughs> and he's the man of 1,004 moves, and he's sitting there reading a list, and they're all variations of the same move. <laughs> but, I mean, it's one of those things you sit there and you laugh at because it's such a clever asshole move. And that's that's just the thing is that I think the wrestlers that did the best in the late 90s are the ones where their respective companies let them say, hey, go ahead, take this idea, foster it, do what you want to do. And these guys found ways to make themselves in the stars. And it's something that no wrestler in today's landscape has that ability to do. Well, anymore. and uh, just, to, just to talk about that, I mean, what, what made that so hilarious was that it, it was no longer that 80s wrestling where they were pretending it was real, right? I mean, they'd let them basically open up and say that kind of stuff. And it was humorous. Whereas one time uh, a friend of mine was interviewing Raven for a, a wrestling website that he owns. And Arn Anderson walked over to us in the bar and was like, telling Raven, don't tell these guys anything. And Raven's looking at him like, dude, everybody knows it's fake. Who cares? Like, I'll, I'll talk about what I want to talk about. And Arn Anderson was seriously, like, offended and, like, angry that we were able to talk to him. And it was just, it, it, it's kind of, to me, that was what was great about the, the 90s was, like, you kind of lost that that whole, I got everything secret and some of the wrestlers use it to their advantage, and Chris Jericho was the best at it, of just, like, making fun of the situation. But yet being so good about it that, like, it was still entertaining. It's I think it's akin to finding out that, all right, the Tooth Fairy's not real, Santa Claus isn't real, and the Easter Bunny's not real. What? But then you... Oh, did I ruin Shit. that for you? Yeah, I did, didn't I? All right, carry on. All right, well... It's, it's, a, it's probably your wife that's putting the Easter eggs out yeah, there. Yeah, true. But, I mean, that's that's part of it, though, is that you you basically believe this to a certain point, but once you find out the truth, it's like, all right, we kind of know how it is. Now, it's maybe part of it is trying to maintain the magic that, hey, you know what? I still want to make sure it's magic because other people doesn't know, don't know it's true. That's fine. But sometimes at a certain point you have to realize that, you know, and especially in the case of wrestling, no. Every, everybody knows what it is. It is what it is at this point. Yep. Most hated 90s wrestler. What do you got on your docket? My most hated 90s wrestler? I'm, I'm going to use this in a little different way. Hate in a good way, Norman Smiley, WCW. Norman Smiley? Oh, when that guy came out, such a tool bag. He was so bad. <laughs> and, like, just so cheesy. But then the more you saw him, it, 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 again, like I had kind of lost that, you know, once you become used to, okay, wrestling's fake, it's hard to really truly hate somebody, right? Like you're kind of like, oh, he's just playing a heel and yeah, okay, I, I don't like him just because I don't like him. But Norman Smiley was one of those guys that was like a little less known, you know, I mean, his biggest role was probably as the cat and, you know, the, the wrestler, the, the movie with, uh, what's his name? Uh, you're talking, wow, am I right now? Uh, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, Mickey yeah. Rourke, you know, like he was the cat. And, but as Norman Smiley, he was such a tool bag and like just kind of flamboyant and, and it was just kind of weird, but like, I honestly hated him, you know, in the beginning, but then after a while you're like, 
Good God, he's kind of funny. So it, it for me, that's what made him great was that it reminded me of my early years of like wrestlers that I hated in the beginning because I thought it was real and like I just didn't like those people. I hated Norman Smiley kind of on that same level. Like I just hated hearing him every time he was on. And then after a while, you're like, why wasn't Norman Smiley on tonight? <laughs> I want I want to well, be pissed at somebody talking. Well, you know what's weird about <laughs> WCW because that's where uh, Norman Smiley wrestled. Is that one thing that WCW was kind of weird about? They were very ambitious that we have this young talent, we're going to push this talent. But everybody knew it felt so forced, and nobody liked them. <laughs> yeah. And then these people would go on to do different things. Like, all right, that's kind of amusing. Like as an example. Uh, you had Alex Wright as an example. He's the German wonder kid. <laughs> but he basically was this guy that come out, do this weird German-like disco dance. But then when they started evolving, like, you know what, just embrace this. Just become as, the most extreme thing you can be. All right, this is kind of amusing. So when you push him in this, no. This, yeah. Like uh, uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, once again. You like sit there and think, man, this guy right here. A little buff Bagwell. I hate this guy. But when you put him a buff Bagwell, yeah. this guy, he's kind of amusing. He's still a dick, but he's a much more exactly. amusing dick. Exactly. Like even like the most notorious, I think, <laughs> one where WCW tried to push a guy was like Van Hammer. Like oh. He's like, oh, I'm this rock guy that's fake playing a guitar. And his greatest other notoriety from that point was ever becoming one of Raven's flock. But I mean, that's. That's what you had to do, I think, sometimes when you were like to survive as a wrestler. Is you got stuck with a bad gimmick. It's like, all right, can I just do something goofy with this? And if I can do that, that's great. My most hated '80s wrestler or '90s wrestler, man. There is so much hatred I have for this guy, Hulk Hogan. Yes. I, yes. The reason I say <laughs> this is for so many different reasons because Hulk Hogan. If it, the main problems with Hulk Hogan is that here's a guy with an amazing ego that would often use his own clout to screw up matches. Or, no brother, I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna not going to lose to this guy. I mean, here's a guy that, you know, his most gracious thing he ever did was losing to the Ultimate Warrior to pass the baton. But when you look past that, everything that Hulk Hogan has ever done in his career since that point has always been selfish. Now, granted, you know, the early WWF days, it was very difficult because there was, as I said, a lot of the steroid scandals. So what's Hogan do? He goes over to WCW. And in WCW, like, once again, you just have this guy that comes into a company and pins their most longest, well-beloved champion, Ric Flair, as if it was nothing. All right. That right there. Once again, kind of a dick move, but here's the thing. Hulk Hogan's been in tons of shitty movies. Ric Flair hasn't. So I guess (laughs) when you got that going for you, sure, you can do that. But the thing is, is even after like a year or so, everybody in WCW just started hating Hogan again. It's like, all right, we've seen it. Yes, hate your vitamins, do the leg drop and all of that. And then Hogan did something that was fresh and unique. During the whole NWO thing, they made him a bad guy. And he was a perfect bad guy because I think at that point, secretly, everybody hated him. Yeah. They didn't like him. And so, hey, you know what? Roll with this. Make that was, him a that bad was guy. the only time in his career I actually liked him. Right. Because he, I, I I was just never a Hogan fan. You never would have expected that out of Hogan. Yeah. So then Hogan becomes this bad guy. And for maybe a couple of months, he's this interesting individual. Because here you see a guy that you thought you knew as an established individual become one of the most heinous individuals in the world and then here's where the problem comes because then hogan has the title hogan has the title for multiple years 
And he would even show up on Nitro for certain weeks because he was off filming whatever horse shit movie TV show he was doing. Thunder in Paradise, brother. Or just whatever (laughs) bad movie he was doing. And here's the aesthetics of when Hogan was on WCW. What do you do? Here's the WCW theme song. Hogan comes out. He's playing his belt like a guitar, brother, because I don't know how to play guitar fake because when I was in WWF, Vince McMahon had me play a guitar fake a bunch of times. And he'd come out to the ring, and I'm sitting here with all my celebrities. I know so-and-so and so-and-so. And then every match Hogan ever wrestled, the reason he didn't lose is because all of the NWO would come down and save his ass. And, listen, brother, I got Dennis Rodman. And it's like, all right. I mean... It was one of those gimmicks that for about five, six months, you were amazed because, wow, what did Hogan become? What what are they going to do with this? Oh, here's a guy that's just basically going to be a paper champion that's just going to be one of the most annoying aspects. And once again, this goes back to my point about the 80s and where titles meant, meant things in the 80s. The world championship title must have meant nothing to the WCW in the late 90s because Hogan had that belt. That belt was barely ever defended. And it there really was, there was no reason why to have that belt. And that's what drove me nuts was just watching this guy that was cashing in on fast glory using this gimmick just to just sit there yeah. and personally advance his own causes. So my most hated 90s wrestler, most definitely Hulk Hogan without a doubt. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because even being a wrestler fan as as far back as I went, like I just never got Hogan. Like I owned all those big rubbery WWF figures. I never bought the Hulk Hogan one because as much as I liked them as Thunderlips and Rocky Three, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, I just never got him as a wrestler. Just never one of my favorite guys. Just nothing about Hogan was real interesting, but yet I respect that. I mean, the, the business wouldn't have been what it was without him, right? I mean, right. he was he was huge. So it's like I respect what he's done for it, but just as an actual wrestling fan, I just never got the Hogan thing. Well, and I, I think the big thing with Hogan is that he never stepped aside. He had his glory days, and there was various points where you could tell his glory days were done, but it was always still about him. In his head, he was still always the biggest star. Biggest yeah, that, that's exactly it. It's like he he didn't understand what people wanted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was just, I'm mm-hmm. going to do what I do, and you got to deal with it because I'm Hulk Hogan. It's like a magician that knows one trick. He knows it very well, but when you keep seeing that same trick over and over again, it's like, all right, I know how the trick is done. It's not interesting anymore. Yeah. But, brother, I do this trick better than anybody else. Watch this. I got beat up, but, oh, there's my hand on my ear. Yeah. And he's hulking up. and so like The applause is getting less and less, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Right. Uh, for you, what was uh, uh, most hated 90s gimmick? And this is so easy for me. I'm definitely afraid of clowns. I've had one nightmare doink. constantly over the years. So, doink the clown. Absolutely the worst thing that has ever happened to wrestling, period. Um, I've always had a nightmare of seeing a clown on a dark road, just holding a helium balloon. And I've had relatives that have mentioned that they're going to do it to me just to be a joke. I will let go of that wheel or I will point it right at that clown. And if it is one of my relatives and they die, that's on them, not me. Cause I absolutely hated doink and I hate everything about clowns. So you're not going to see the new adaptation of Stephen King's it. Oh no. That was one of my favorite books. Yeah, that's I've I've heard it's really good. I, I just I have a I, I have 
I got it right. Over, I got it over here. Both the original first printing of the yeah, hard paper man. Just yeah. not my things. I'm not scared of much, but clowns. I just I, nobody's that happy. I will say that it was one of the books that just made me like think twice about clowns. Like, oh shit. Yeah. And see, I don't mind cartoon clowns like Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons. Hey, hey, hey. That's some funny shit there. Like, I get that. But I'm talking real people that do that for a living. Like John Wayne Gacy? Exactly. (laughs) They're all like that. No one's that happy. You can't. Who wants to go hang out with a bunch of 10-year-olds? I've got kids. My my father-in-law is an amateur clown. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry. I wonder what dark secrets he has. Oh, I guarantee that they're there. (laughs) <laughs> no no offense if you're listening i'm sure you're a great person yeah he doesn't listen to this if you do <laughs> frank i'm sorry <laughs> but yeah doink the clown not not my thing all right for me my most hated 90s gimmick is the nwo after the first six months and the reason i say that is that the nwo was this amazing radical concept that hey here's kevin nash and scott hall coming over to wcw Holy shit, what is going on? These guys are WCW wrestlers. Oh my God, Hulk Hogan became a bad guy. And that alone was one of the most interesting things possible because it was one of those moments you truly didn't know what was going to happen on WCW wrestling. You would watch it and like, my God, is anybody else going to show up? Who's going to join the NWO next? And, you know, they got the Giant to join, which is actually kind of weird in retrospect because (laughs) they beat up the Giant and took his title and... Then, like, you know, Hogan's like, come on, join us, brother. He's like, well, you took my title, but all right, cool. I'll join you guys. <laughs> and it's like, look, we got six here. And it's like, I'm the one, two, three kid. And I'm going to go out and lay pipe on China. God yeah. bless your soul. And yeah, it's depressing. Poor again. guy. But, I mean, that's the thing is the first six months were just amazing, radical things. Yeah, because like, it was exciting. It was. It, it was one of those and things. And then the Hogan factor took over and it just became stale. I don't even think it's the Hogan factor became stale in NWO. Here's the two points I think that really made the NWO bad. Point number one is this. It was about around, after Halloween Havoc, I want to say it was before Starcade because that's where they had the match with uh, Hogan and Piper. It is when they revealed, shocking secret, guys, it's a spoiler, but... That's when they said Eric Bischoff is the secret runner of the NWO. And it's, <laughs> yes. like, it's like, oh, Eric Bischoff? And then we were subjected to Eric Bischoff's smarmy, smug face for the, the next two to three years. Yeah. So that was one turning point. But then the other turning point is, is that you have all these amazingly destructive badass wrestlers. And then they sit there and say, we're going to start recruiting. Well, who do they get? We got Scott Norton, guys. Scott Norton. Oh, wait, what? Wow. We got Michael Wall Street. Wait, what? Wait, again, what? We got Michael Wall Street, Scott Norton. Don't worry, guys. We're going to get Conan someday, too. And it's like, oh, and we're going to have Buff Bagwell. Now, granted, that was one of the cases where the NWO took a guy that had a shitty gimmick and actually made him pretty good. Yeah. But, I mean, at that point, then all the people that kept joining the NWO were these, like, CRD listers. Which then, like, you'd see them go out, and they were the only NWO members that were either A, wrestling, and if they did, they lost most of the time because, like, well, we need the NWO guy have guys that are going to lose because none of the top guys are going to lose. So we're going to have the D-class here lose. It's like being sit there and saying, hey, you want to be a pitcher on our team? Okay. Well, guess what? We're only going to put you in when we're losing horribly. So you're going to be the guy that goes out there and... You're probably going to lose, but you know what? Have fun with it. So Yeah, so it became the 80s, like early years where you got all the jobbers 
but they weren't supposed to be jobbers at that point, no. right? But that's what they made them, and it sucked. And the whole thing, if you ever read any stories or backstories about how it goes, Eric Bischoff wanted to make NWO its own federation at one point. He sat there and said, you know what, this is so popular, and Ted Turner loved it. Ted Turner's like, hey, I'm making tons of money, why not? So Eric Bischoff kept running with it, and it, it ran its course so badly. It ran its course where... After a year, they could have probably ended it, and you know what? That would have been fine. But instead, not only would it continue to go on in different iterations, but it's like then at one point they had, well, we got two different factions of the NWO. And then they had guys joining the NWO that, like, well, why are they joining the NWO? Like, hey, guess what, guys? Bret Hart's on the NWO now. Wait, Bret Hart? (laughs) Sting, the guy they hated NWO. He's cool with them now, so Sting's in the NWO. You know, Savage, Page, they put everybody into the NWO, and that's when it just became one of those horrible gimmicks where it's like, all right, so you just want to have a gimmick where it's nothing but the cool guys hanging out pretty much. Yeah, exactly, with no story, background, or or reason. Motivation. That's yeah, I think just... that's the key thing is if you don't have a motivation, it's hard to invest in somebody. So, you know, shock will go, as I mentioned earlier, shock value goes so far, but the shock value wears off like, you know, it's like, oh, my God, who's going to join the NWO? And if it comes a year later, man, who's going to join the NWO? Well, and the only Dallas? good thing out of that was Dallas Diamond Page not joining, right. right? Like, that was the one key moment. It was like everybody was joining, and you're like, oh, great. Now they got Page. And, he's, and he didn't, and that made it fun for a week. Yeah, he established his career by not going in line with what else WCW is yep. doing. And I so I, I think that's, I, but I think honestly, it's Eric Bischoff's overcommitment to the NWO, which was one of the, defined, the defining factors that caused the loss of WCW to WWF. Because as I said, WWF was doing all these innovative things. They were letting their characters be characters, whereas in WCW, it then just started becoming this cookie cutter thing where the only interesting thing, as I said, were like the cruiserweights, the luchadors. Maybe there's some they're un, really unappreciated mid carters, but when you looked at what their main events were, their mid events main events were some of the most garbage main events out there, and it's it's still frustrating to this day. So, so I think for the most part that covers up a lot of the '90s. Anything else you want to touch up on the '90s before we go into, I guess, wrestling today in the wrap up? No, I think we're good. All right. So next up, all right, let's. We're talking about wrestling now going forward. Now, we talked about the 80s and 90s, I think, with wrestling. I think that's when it was most iconic. And the reason I say it's most iconic is this, because there's so many concepts that wrestling did back in the 80s and 90s that bled into other culture. Like, as an example, the one thing I love about wrestling, like, they'd even bled into baseball. It's like, with wrestling, everybody had their entrance music. With baseball, now closers have entrance music. Baseball players going up to the plate have their entrance music. And I always thought that was just a badass thing. Matter of fact, if you were a professional wrestler, what would be your entrance music? I'd have to go a little Motley Crue somewhere along the way. I mean, that's my favorite band of all time. A little Primal Scream, probably. I mean, it's, you know, get the crowd up, get them going. See, my uh, entrance music, I had to think about it because first I want to make sure it corresponds with what my finishing move would be. (laughs) Now, my entrance music would be Dirty Black Summer by Glenn Danzig. Yes. Now, my finishing move, I would call the Southern Cross. And what that is, it's a taint punch. I would punch my (laughs) my opponent in the taint and then 
finish it up with a small package to roll up. <laughs> nice. Hey, uh, on that note, I actually invented a wrestling move when I was little, and I shared that with the time when I met Raven. I'm like, had a few beers in me, and I'm like, I came up with a wrestling move when I was 10. Let me show it to you. A year later, or maybe even six months later, Jeff Jericho started using it, or Jeff Jarrett started using my wrestling move. Damn you, Jeff so, Jarrett. So somewhere along the way, I should get credit for what I call the Hansonator, where you stand behind an opponent, put your hand behind their head, and trip them forward. That was my move. I came up with that. I showed it to Raven, and all of a sudden it started showing up on TV. See, I had two submission holds also on deck. My submission holds, one of them was you do a headlock like you're doing a DDT, but what you do is you grab the person's like far arm, which would be their left arm if you have them in the right hand. And then use your third arm to hit them in the taint? No. <laughs> what you do is you take the arm, you put them into a chicken wing, drag them to the ground, and then use your legs to wrap up the other leg. So basically you're just wrenching their arm in a chicken wing, their other le- arm they can't move because it's in the legs. And I didn't name that one, but the other one I had, which was uh, basically, it was like a crucifix style where you leg lock, basically your arm bar one, uh, let's say the right arm, you use your legs to arm bar or uh, lock up the left arm and you kind of look like a cross. And then basically you just use your free arm and just keep wailing on the guy. <laughs> just get it all you, you have UCF. Yeah. Or you have WUFC. Stop taking notes, Vince McMahon. Don't do this. Yep. Next thing you know, on NXT, you're going to see those two moves right there. But yes, you will. But I, I think you know that was one aspect that was iconic. The other thing too was like, and I brought it up in the beginning of the podcast, like the championship belt. Like for Christ's sake, like Aaron Rodgers made a championship belt for when he won the Super Bowl. I mean those those are silly little <laughs> things you look at. But it's also, I think, how wrestling came into it. You look at catchphrases and how catchphrases in wrestling bled into the mainstream. Even finishing moves. Like, back in the 80s, some wrestlers had finishing moves. When you got into the late 80s or late 90s, everybody had finishing moves. Right. So, I mean, these are things that bled into culture. So, what has wrestling been like for the past 17 years? And the reason I kind of didn't go into wrestling in the, you know, I don't even know what you call them. Do you call them the 2000s? The aughts? Yeah. 2000 to 210 the 2000s or the 10s but i i think where wrestling probably took one of the worst left turns possible was when uh wwf purchased wcw once you eliminated the competition i think i don't i don't want to say wrestling got lazy but there wasn't the need to try to rise above something anymore instead it became well, we're the only show on earth, so guess what? You're going to watch us anyhow. And it's amusing because in the early years, I think, with that, what tend to happen was that, all right, there was still some minor innovation. I think where everything kind of lost itself was after a few factors. I mean, I, I think one factor, number one, is is that when certain wrestlers died in the 2000s, when Eddie Guerrero died, you lose Chris Benoit, you start losing all these wrestlers because of, heart conditions or head conditions. As I mentioned earlier, I think there was a price to pay for some of the great wrestling we got back in the 80s and 90s. And I think that was the other thing that kind of soured it is you started seeing the physical toll it took on certain people. And I think that kind of tainted it. So the product changed and it stopped being wrestling. And even WWF became WWE because Panda Bears will sue you. But I think <laughs> I think the other problem that came into it as well is that, you know, we... We're just going to start becoming sports entertainment. 
we're not wrestling or a sport anymore. And I, I think that was one of the big factors. I mean, what are your feelings and thoughts on that? Yeah, going down to one, one thing only just sucked. Mm-hmm. Because there was always aspects of WWF or WWE that I appreciated. But the stuff that I didn't like, it was nice to flip to another channel and see what else was going on there. Right. So, yeah, getting it down to... And like I said, from what I know about Vince McMahon is he kind of wants to stick with his format and he doesn't let too many people talk him out of that. So I think when things are going well in WWF it's or WWE, it's exciting. But when they're not, I tune out completely because it just kind of, you have no other option. I think it suffers more so now from an antiquated style of thinking. I mean, if now that you don't have anybody else to compete against, you're right. I, I, the biggest thing you always hear is how Vince McMahon now is very absolute about things. And I, I will say, like, I don't have the WWE Network. I did do the one-month trial, and I did it during the heart of when NXT was probably at its best. And the one thing I'll say about this is that NXT was an amazing thing that Triple H did where he said, hey, I'm going to actually build and develop wrestlers. And then these guys go to WWE and they fail horribly just because the WWE doesn't play by those rules anymore. It's and like, again, it's that that's Vince's control. Exactly. Like Hunter knows what wrestlers want, you know, wrestling fans want to see. And I think everything I've heard about NXT, cause I can't lie and say I'm the hugest fan of it or I've paid too much attention to it. But everybody that does watch it that I know absolutely loves it for that reason. Like it's good. It's good wrestling and it's not the same show every week you you see where people are developing when i was watching xt it's like all right they're letting these people breathe and try different things or develop things and you see so many of this talent that got called up to wwf and or sorry wwe at this point and all right they just can't work in that setting right there it's like all right now (laughs) it's almost like an office space kind of mentality yeah you maybe did this here but this is how we do this here and you better get your TPS reports in order because if you don't, well, then you're just going to be jobbing for six months straight or, you know, that's how it goes. So I think that's one of the biggest problems with wrestling is you need to have a competitor. Now, that being said, I'm sure somebody will comment or, you know, say, well, what about TNA? Well, yes, there was another organization out there, TNA, which has been out there for a while. And they've always been definitely the number two, no matter what. And, They've always signed people past their prime in the sense that, hey, we got Kevin Nash, we signed Hogan. Guess what? We got Sting over there. We have Jeff Jarrett. They, they've got a lot of out-of-prime guys. It's not to say they didn't have good guys in there. If you look at some of the guys that are in WWE right now that are thriving, guys like AJ Styles and Samoa Joe, these are guys that thrived in TNA. But once again, the lack of exposure is always going to kind of hurt you right there, and that's what always hurt TNA. Well, the other part of it, too, is that TNA kind of carried on, I think, some of the same traditions that uh, WCW had. Is hey, the old guys have all the power in the world, and if you're a new guy, well, you're going to be a early to mid-carder for the most part. So competition is always a good thing. It's everybody always, I and I'll say this, like one job and career that I had, you know, before doing what I do currently right now when I'm not making podcasts is I I work at Best Buy and I remember when Circuit City went out of business a lot of people I remember were celebrating and saying oh Circuit City's out of business yay I'm like why is that a good thing it's like well that's that's a lot we don't have somebody to compete against I'm like all right two things here one 
That just means a whole bunch of people lost their jobs. That's never a thing you ever want to applaud. But when you don't have competition, there's nothing to push you towards innovation. And when you don't have somebody out there nipping at your heels, like it, it, this now is going to turn into an economic podcast. But <coughs> when you had Best Buy versus Circuit City as an example, these are two guys in the same field. When they got rid of Circuit City, all right, who are we going to compete against next? Oh, we're competing against uh, Walmart and Amazon, which are a much bigger thing than us. And that's kind of how TNA was in some ways, is that, you know, here's these guys that came along and they're competing, but they're competing against something that's out of a league. And the problem is, is that you don't, then these organizations don't need to innovate. Now, I will say Amazon has definitely done a lot of various innovation and has become an amazing company itself. But what innovation has Walmart ever really done? I mean, they, they sell things because they sell things cheap and they sell things because of volume. So bringing this all back down to wrestling itself, I mean, it's I don't watch wrestling actively anymore. When I watch it, it just feels like every week there's no difference in any characters. Everybody feels exactly the same where uh, you have the same guy writing the same lines no matter who it is and everything has become like a Mad Libs book almost in the sense just fill in all these words and once you fill these in there's your script and that's what it's become I mean what's your thoughts on that yeah I, I actually still have the network and you know I'll, I'll watch the pay-per-views but I, I think the last 17 years for me has kind of been a mixed bag of good and bad like you know, I think WWE's done some things really well, and then they've had a lot of unfortunate events, too. Like, Daniel Bryan was one of the most entertaining wrestlers, you know, ever, probably. But then he has to retire. CM Punk, you know, was on a nice little run. Then he leaves. Well, And I, then you have Seth Rollins, who to me is a, a tremendous wrestler. You know, and that dude's got it all. He can talk. He can wrestle. He's he's talented. He's been facing injuries. And then your your, your mainstay card these days is Brock Lesnar, who's a guy who one can't make up his mind whether he wants to wrestle or you know be a UFC fighter. And then two, he wrestles three times a year at the most. It's the Hulk Hogan syndrome. Yeah, hey, exactly. I barely defend the title, and you're supposed to be excited when I do. And the the draw is I'm this physical beast. But all right, it gets tiring after a while, and that's what it's become. I'll agree with you on Daniel Bryan. Him getting hurt was definitely something that was a huge strike against WWE where they could have done so much with him. But you know what? There's a price to pay for when you wrestle a physical style. And yeah. His his build came a lot early. But I will disagree when it comes to, let's say, Punk and Rollins. Both those are individuals that were mishandled. We have this amazing thing where, hey, CM Punk does this amazing interview that puts him as high up on the chart as willing as po- much as possible. And what do you do with that run? You find every way possible to mangle that run yeah. and kill his momentum. And that's Vince being Vince. They do that with everybody. Right. They do it with everybody. Same thing with Rollins. You have a guy where, hey, this guy could be an amazing heel, but you know what? They find a way to ruin Yeah, the every match they had to have interference. Which right. is like, no, the guy's good enough where you don't need to do that, but... They just ran it into the ground, and then he gets hurt, and then where do you go from there? Or even worse, they don't, and this is, as I said, back in the 90s, when WWF and WCW let their wrestlers be themselves, they found ways to be them. Now when you have a highly controlled atmosphere, you have a guy like Dean Ambrose that maybe could be an interesting guy, but the problem is, uh, we're just going to write him like this, and basically you're like, wow, poor brain-damaged guy, I mean, he's trying the best he can, and... 
I mean, that's everybody. You could probably take so many different wrestlers, interchange their dialogue and what they're doing, and there's not a difference. And I think that's the difference is that there's no character. I know one thing people will say is that there's the other thing that maybe held back wrestling over the past decade or so is the John Cena factor, where well they keep giving Cena the title and he's going to always find ways to win. But on that other side of the spectrum, there too. John Cena was the Hulk Hogan of this past decade, too. He was the guy that people liked, or even if they didn't like, they still respected maybe to a certain extent. I would say the difference between John Cena and Hulk Hogan is at least John Cena's a worker, which Hulk Hogan never was. Yeah. Yeah, Cena had some matches in the last few years that were really impressive. Because I've always hated the guy, but... I'm. But you hated him. I give it to him. You, you know, he actually went out and worked. You hated him because Vince always made him go out and yeah. win. It's like, well, this is my golden boy, so I'm going to keep putting the title on him. Or, all right, instead of you doing this, well, Cena's going to do this, and that's yeah. that's the problem. There is that it's it's become such a constricted workspace that nobody has the ability to succeed. Or what's even worse is that if you get called up from NXT, where if you consider that to be the minor leagues of, let's say, wrestling. The, the sad thing is that some of the product that NXT was putting out was far better than WWE, but then they moved that talent up, and they they don't know how to write them. I mean, They like, don't, and a perfect example of that is Kevin Owens. Mm-hmm. God, his first, like, three pay-per-views were some of the best matches in a long time. I mean, that guy can wrestle, and he was working hard, but then it's like, okay, we saw that at the pay-per-view, then the next night you have the rematch, and it just... It becomes so muddy because you just see the same thing over and over. And then the WWE seems to reach a point where, where do we go with this guy next? And they don't. They either have him wrestle the same guy for six months or they stop using him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the worst thing to me about wrestling these days. It's like they just don't know how to develop. The other aspect is tag team wrestling is such a joke now. Mm-hmm. Like, God, it used to be so good. WWE had such great wrestlers. We were talking about this off air with Heart Foundation and the Bulldogs and God, I, I didn't like them, but the Killer Bees, you know, just they had variety and it was so good. And now, like, it's either two guys that are paired together that just have nothing to do with each other, but we need a tag team match in this spot, or it's tag teams that just no one cares about. What you almost really need at this point is you need a solid number two to push them. And TNA still is nowhere. In, I mean, this is a company that's been on the verge of bankruptcy for God or knows how so long. If somebody came along and built a solid number two organization. Now, uh, that being said, one thing that's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've ever watched Lucha Underground. No, I have not. So it's on the El Rey uh, network. And they have... They do what they call seasons. Basically, they film the stuff and they do it in a season format. So it's not like, hey, every Monday we have to have a product. Every Tuesday we have to have a product. We have to have a pay-per-view. Instead, they film it and it's they they still build it around stories and everything. But it's done in a more, you know, Luchador-based atmosphere. And there is fake aspects of it. But it's also being done in terms of stories. They're, they're not going to compete with WWE at this point, but there's other organizations out there, but there's not a solid number two that can sit there and say, hey, we can sign away all these offcasts from, let's say, WWE and make them into something better. And that's, I think that's the key is that, you know, Coke is great, but if there wasn't Pepsi to push Coke along, 
people get tired of Coke or Coke Zero or Diet Coke or Coca-Cola One or whatever version of Coke that you prefer at this point. But competition is always the biggest thing. I mean, without rivals, without people to push and motivate you, you basically get lazy or you just apathetic. I mean, for some wrestlers in WWE right now, what's their motivation? I mean, all right. They're not going to give me the title from Brock Lesnar. So what am I fighting for? And that goes back to my statement about titles not meaning a thing at this right. point anymore. Hey, guess what? The way the only way the titles have been used over the past couple of years is as benchmarks. Like, look, New Day has now become the longest tag team champions beating Demolition's record. Look, Charlotte Flair has now beat you know <laughs> this record, and they'd be using it in that style and. It's, it's like, all right, so that means for a year and a half, I had to put up with you making these guys win all the time. Or not even win, win by disqualification, what other cheap cop-out yeah, method. Yeah, Seth Rollins is a perfect example of that. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's the problem is that, and it's not an easily fixable problem. I mean, one question I ask, what would be make wrestling better today? And I think the obvious answer is going to be number getting a number two organization. Yeah. But if Vince wants to make wrestling better, Sometimes give the fans what they want. Exactly. I mean, don't don't sit there like, oh, they, the fans are going to know what's going on. Well, fine, then give it to them. It's not a bad thing to do fan service and placate your actual fan base. That's good because that means, but, you know, sit there and say, well, I don't want to make the fans happy because it's not my idea. Instead, we're going to do this because that's going to show them that I know what's best. That's such a petty, horrible mentality right there. And that's... That's cutting off your foot to save the body when there's no yeah. infection at this point. Well, that's like I'd say, I'd argue that the number two right now is NXT. Mm-hmm. And it's owned by WWE, so, I mean, that makes it hard. You know what I mean? It just, where do you go from there? And, yeah, Vince, I think, I think from what I've heard, Hunter has a lot of great ideas that get shot down. And to me, that's where Vince obviously knows what he's doing. He's made a lot of money doing what he's done, and he's been great at it for a long time. But to me... As a wrestler fan from way back, it just it's boring for the most part. Yeah, it it something something has to change, and I don't think anything will. Nothing will change really within any reasonable time. I think the only way something would change is if something medically happened to Vince McMahon that forced somebody else to step into the creative position. I think it's ironic that we talk about Hunter in the way we do in the sense that, hey, here's this guy that's done something great when you consider that many think of him being very selfish at various aspects of his career. Yeah, that's kind of what maybe he might have been in the past, but it doesn't mean that necessarily he wants to, doesn't want to introduce new ideas right now. And I, I think that's the key right there. So wrestling folks so all of that being said kind of covered about three to four decades of wrestling found out the things we loved and hated i uh, like to thank all of you this one's definitely a little bit longer episode pushing about an hour 50 or so so if you've actually taken the time to listen to this good for you i appreciate it <laughs> i like to thank kevin for sitting here doing the podcast with thanks me for, for having me hours. this was a blast yeah no problem uh, as for what the next episode is going to be or when that's going to come out, I'm trying to get a little bit more regular about trying to do episodes, but life is always the biggest thing I have to fight against. Uh, next episodes, I'm kind of either leaning towards either things along the lines of 80s cartoons, the most thinking about rock music. I don't know. If you guys got something you want me to talk about from the 80s and 90s or something to revisit, feel free to visit one of our social media sites, either visit the Burning Bridges pages on Facebook or the Be Bridges podcast uh, at Be Bridges podcast on Twitter. Give us a suggestion. I have no ideas. If there's things out there enough people feel strong about, 
by all means, recommend that to us. Otherwise, I'd like to thank all our listeners. And until next time, thank you very much. See you.